You're listening to the Global Sales Leader Podcast, episode 52 with Dr. Christopher Croner. This episode, we are speaking about what makes the perfect sales persona and what are the core elements that meet success within sales and how they accelerate this. Very interesting discussion that we had talking about all the areas of psychology, coaching and other elements around that. You can listen to this plus lots more on this episode. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, good morning, good evening and good afternoon. And wherever you are in this wide, wonderful, beautiful world, you're listening to the Global Sales Leader Podcast. My name is Jason Cooper. I'm the sales relationship coach. The way I look at it and the way I work with people, it's all about that relationship. It's, it's sometimes about the rapport, the connection. It's how we connect with the other person using and utilizing our people skills. Because at the end of the day, it's high levels of people skills, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it. But it's also being grounded within yourself so you can connect and radiate with the other person. So I got a wonderful guest today. It's Dr. Christopher Croner, PhD. So you are very welcome, Christopher, and I'm delighted to speak with you. I'm always interested in speaking to different people from different backgrounds. So you're very welcome. Jason, thank you so much, sir. It's a pleasure to be here today, and I very much look forward to being of service to you and your audience. Thank you. Like a bit of a synopsis about you, BA in psychology from DePaul University with a master's in PhD in clinical psychology and author. And I've read half of his book so far, but I'm gonna read the rest of it. Never hire a bad salesperson again. So detailing lots of lots of academic research in the background and lots of your probably own research in there. And you also have an assessment um, psychology background as well. And look, there's lots of different facets. Rather than me talking about you, why don't you just talk about you and say, what got you in? You're obviously into psychology, but it's obviously mm-hmm. understanding people. Sales is one of those things. So what prompted you to stay off in this direction? Very, very good question. After I got my PhD, I joined a firm in the Chicago suburbs called Whitmer and Associates that specialized in executive assessment. So an executive assessment is an assessment that uh, psychologists will sometimes do, industrial organizational psychologists will sometimes do when a company needs to hire, say, a new president, a new VP of sales, a new VP of HR, really to determine whether the person's going to have the leadership skills essential for that position, really combines an interview process, for example, with uh, job simulation, sometimes some assessments as well. That company wanted to design something as rigorous as that, a process as rigorous as that for salespeople. Because of course, sales is the lifeblood of any company. And if you're not selling anything, it doesn't matter who you have at the top because yeah. you, you, you know you have that lifeblood, if you will. So they brought me on board to focus on that, to develop a process, to uh, assess whether someone would be an effective salesperson involving a combination of an interview and psychological assessment, et cetera. So we really kind of spent a lot of time formulating that process, uh, did that for a few years. Uh, met my co-author and business partner now, Richard Abraham, a few years thereafter uh, in 2005. Uh, We wrote Never Hire a Bad Salesperson Again, the first edition of which was released in 2006. Started Sales Drive in 2005. Again, we have an online assessment that companies use to determine whether candidates have those non-teachable characteristics essential for success. We've been doing that since then. We worked at this point with 
gosh, over 1,400 companies uh, worldwide. And again, we're always happy to be of service to discuss everything that we've learned and to be of service to anyone who has questions, for example, about what are the characteristics that lead to success in sales? What is it that differentiates the highest performers? It's my pleasure to discuss that at length with you today. Okay, so straight into the question then. What are the characteristics of a phenomenal salesperson? Because I want to put this po uh, podcast today, it's always, always the, the, the point, and we discussed this before, is I want to give golden nuggets of knowledge, information. So when people listen to this podcast, and they do, is for them to take stuff away and go, I, I want to practice that, I want to learn that. That's really fascinating. Um, so what makes the perfect salesperson? Number one, what's the behavior? Yes, really three key characteristics. And the question we'll get before I even get into those is how do you derive those characteristics? Yeah, exactly. Started out uh, looking at, gosh, uh, as I mentioned, 20 years ago, when I got my start doing this, looking at everything that had been published academically uh, in terms of the world of academics, what is that leads to success as a salesperson? Everything that had been published over the last, Jason, 85, almost 90 years now as well as looking at my own work, doing those behavioral interviews with sales candidates and then circling back with their managers thereafter to find out who really does become successful, what traits. What one question, one question before I jump in there uh, before you carry on any further. What was the top book that you found that was going, ah, oh, this is this is going to light the life of me. What, what was the one book that went, ah, oh, wow, this is incredible. Before we jump into the rest of it, because I just thought mm -hmm. about it, I'm going to have to ask you the question. Sure. So in terms of books that I read, in terms of background, yeah, in terms of the background research and what sort of really stood out as going well. Oh, yeah, of course. Interestingly, the majority of what I had read, I would say that the books by McClelland, uh, McClelland uh, that talked about achievement striving were probably most important, but the majority of the research that we looked at academically was actually in the form of published studies. So published studies that would be published in academic journals. Ah. I guess there probably wasn't one really journal uh, that, that, that stood out if you will, because there, there are so, so many hundreds of them, if yeah, you yeah, will. Are, yeah. um, but I would say McClellan's books, where he talked about the origins of one of the first characteristics that we're going to be talking about in a minute, probably did stand out to me because they really kind of differentiated a, a topic and a characteristic that most people forget about, that most people forget about when they hire or, or interview a salesperson. They don't think about them. They think about, again, when you ask anyone what leads someone to be successful as a salesperson. They're typically going to give you very broad generic answers. They'll scratch it and say, well, you want somebody, for example, who has good relationship skills, or they have the gift of gab, or they enjoy persuading people, <laughs> things like that. But those are all teachable. Yes, those are all important. That's what we found. Those, are, those were all indeed very important. Yeah. But above and beyond any of those by far, as I mentioned, were these three non-teachable characteristics that continued to stand out and differentiate the highest performers, particularly, Jason, those whom we would describe as effective hunters, a hunter being a person who needs to go out and acquire new accounts. When you think about that person psychologically, someone who has to go out, knock on a door, if you will, sometimes in person, sometimes over the phone, but they're knocking on a door, sometimes in some cases getting that door slammed in their face, and then having to knock on the next door with that much more certainty and passion and conviction, psychologically, that's a very special person yeah, that we're yeah, talking yeah. about. So the first key differentiator is what we call the need for achievement. I mentioned McClellan's books. The person, again, who wants to do well simply for the sake of doing well. Mm. So the person who's high in need for achievement, they just naturally want to set the bar high, if you will. They want to jump over that, and then they want to set it even higher again the next time. So they are constantly pursuing excellence, 
simply for the sake of excellence. And it's interesting yes. because the research shows that characteristic need for achievement, I'm sure you've seen it. It's important not only for salespeople, but also incidentally for entrepreneurs. People have to kind of wake up every morning and make it happen and there's yep. nobody standing over them watching them. So as you can imagine, as companies are now having to hire in many cases more and more remotely, we're finding that characteristic need for achievement just continues to become more and more important because you don't always have the opportunity to stand over someone's shoulder all day long. You have to trust that they're going to be out there constantly focused on uh, doing better and ex excelling their own expectations or exceeding their own expectations. So that's the so, first- Christopher, Christopher yes, before you jump into the next part. Of course. So what goes into the mind of the mindset of the person? So he wakes up in the morning, he's mm -hmm. on his own, he's remote. What goes mm -hmm. on in his head? What does sure. he say to himself? What does he talk to himself? Because it's all about self-dialogue. It's all about yes. what you say and suggest to yourself because we're all visualized stuff that goes on all the time. Mm -hmm. But we know from fight, flight or freeze mechanism, uh, we know that uh, it's, it's there to protect us. But what do we do and how do we self-talk to ourselves? Because there's lots of self-sabotage going on all the time. Very, very true. Very, very true. The person who is high in need for achievement is thinking about their previous goal, what, what they've accomplished in the past, and what they can do today. What step are they going to take today to take that performance to the next level? Now, the highest performers, we find, tend to have more of a system that they operate by. They don't get too caught up, uh, typically staring at, say, the, the top of the letter, as, as many uh, trainers have described it. They don't necessarily stare at the top of the pyramid all day. They think about what is the next step. It's easier to think about what is the next step on, that you're going to take that particular day than to worry about everything, you know, getting all the way to the top of the mountain, not worrying about the top of the mountain, just worrying about the next step. And they have a system that they, that they uh, typically will lay out for themselves every day, ideally the evening before, spending their time thinking about what are my top priorities, et cetera, the next day, doing their best to say, what concrete things am I going to do to pursue those priorities. When they have that written out and they have that plan for themselves, the next day, a lot of that, it's almost like writing an outline to a good paper when you're you know, in, in, in school to get a high mark, if you will. You're doing all of that work ahead of time, the, the hard thinking process in terms of, okay, what do I exactly need to do? Then when you wake up that morning, you're thinking, okay, what's the first step that I'm going to take to achieve that particular task? So all about thinking about the next step rather than the top of the mountain, because once when you do it, when you break things down in that way, you're much more like, likely to succeed because, because you have a consistent pattern, a consistent a process, if you will. So that's there's, typically how they're focused on it. There's a direct correlation uh, between writing your goals down at night and putting pen to paper. Um, and we know from research, and I've read a lot about this in research, is pen to paper, there's a connection and you can see it and you can visualize it when you write your goals down. But when you do it at night, you dream about it, or hopefully mm -hmm. you dream about it, uh, as long amongst other things that you dream about, but you dream about those. So you're more inclined to remember it for the next day. One of the other steps that I heard and I read constantly and it comes across um, Tink Rich Growrich by Napoleon Hill says it 100 years ago when he interviewed all these phenomenal people back mm -hmm. then is to visualize things actually happening, but also mm -hmm. visualizing your day in the right way. And that's probably what you suggested just before that. It, and it is our brains are wired and fired to mm -hmm. visualize things. And to maybe visualize things going well and visualize your day and maybe visualize a meeting, maybe visualize what you're going to do, but plan it in your head or it's like a mental rehearsal. Mm -hmm. 
Very, very true. Because when you do that process of visualization, you're giving yourself that first template. You're showing yourself, okay, here, this is exactly what I want to achieve in this moment. You know, breaking down moment by moment what you ideally want it to look like. Sort of like um, some of the great sales trainers have talked about when people show up at at a, uh, at, at a, at a client or at a prospect uh, when they're doing so in person, imagining or visualizing the, the red carpet being laid out, if you will. I've heard people describe that. But it's just that idea of sitting down thinking about what you're going to do day to day and picturing things going ideally as you would like them to go. Because when you start to visualize things going as you would like them to go, you're gonna set that template for your brain, if you will. You're gonna solve the problems or the little nuances, if you will, that you might struggle with if you didn't take the time to visualize it. So you're essentially, at the end of the day, you're planning it. You're, you're planning it in a much more intricate and and um, exquisite way, if you will. Yeah, and there, 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 is, there is the planning that goes on inside. You construct the images well, after you've written the goals down. And uh, I recently watched Brian Tracy video quite recently again, yes. and Zig Ziglar as well. And they both said that 30 Brian years Tracy. ago. Nothing's yes. changed, but they both were saying it. And I'm going, wow, that I've just read a neuroscience book and they've said exactly that 30 uh -huh. years ago. But they've studied success from a different era and a different way. But a lot of it um, is true, apart from the technologies all changed and all that. So yes. yeah, I'm I'm intrigued and fascinated by the behavior and the research that you've done in your in your assessments when you're actually with people. So mm -hmm. what are the other behaviors and characteristics and attitudes? Of course, uh, the second is what we call competitiveness, and competitiveness is just that. It's really two things: the competitive salesperson, number one, they want to be the best in their team. They want to compare their performance to their peers because they just need to know how they stand. Think about. Um, here in the United States, Michael Jordan, the person yep. who, who would almost let nothing get in the way of his competitive desire to succeed, if you will. And number two, they want to win that client or that customer over to their point of view. Because to them, uh, psychologically, they see that sale in some ways as a bit like a contest of wills. So again, that's the two things they want to do. They want to be the best in their team and they want to win that client or that prospect over to their point of view. And then the third element is optimism. And that is the salesperson's sense of certainty that they will succeed, as well as, of course, their resilience to hang in there when they face the inevitable rejection that a salesperson just has to deal with. When you think about that, when you think about, again, the first thing the person thinks about in the morning, it's not just that need for achievement. It's also the competitiveness and the optimism that they're putting together as they think about what they're going to be engaging in that day. The optimism, as you can imagine, is helpful as well to think about, okay, let's picture things going well. Let's picture the best thing that can possibly happen mm -hmm. and sort of training that because, again, Optimistic salespeople we find consistently look at selling events work consistently uh, sell 30% more than those that are lower uh, in optimism. There's a reason for that. You know, they expect that things are going to go well. If I anticipate that the call is going to go well, that is going to impact the way that I get ready for it. It's going to impact my behavior during the call. It's going to impact what I think you're going to say to me as the prospect, for example, which is going to impact my comfort in responding to you. All of those things come together. Uh, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism psychologically to create what we call drive. And that's the challenge, that drive characteristic. As I mentioned, past the age of 21, 22, not much we can really do to change the salesperson's overall level of drive. It's kind of either it's there or it's not. And the research also shows, unfortunately, that drive, as you can probably imagine, is the easiest characteristic for a candidate to fake in the interview and the most difficult characteristic to accurately rate. So, of course, that's why we have our online assessment. That's what our clients use our online assessment for, to kind of suss out whether the person is going to, you know, have those characteristics, if you will, so as well as, what again. Are, what are the characteristics in, the, in, in your assessment that you can go, bang, got that? Obviously, there's other things that you can do after that within an interview to tell whether something's congruent or not. But what, what did you measure in the assessment uh, tools 
because I've done lots of them. I've done <laughs> I can't, I've done countless number of them. So, but I'm intrigued by what you're what you're studying and what you're seeing and what are the results for that. Sure. So um, a related question we'll sometimes, we'll sometimes get is, well, how do you, what, what, do, what does your assessment do to identify these characteristics? How do you, how do you pick them out? And again, when we created the, the drive test, the current version of the drive test uh, several years ago, we wanted to make sure that we had, first, first of all, in the way that the questions were put together, we wanted to make sure we eliminated one of the problems that particularly um, affects, we find some assessments of sales candidates. And that's that many times questions can be just a little bit too easy. Uh, for sales candidates, especially, as you can probably imagine, to size up the assessment, yeah. figure out what the questions are really looking for, and then just fake their way through it. So, for example, the question just, just said something like, I consider myself very persuasive. Rate this from one, not at all like you, to five, exactly like you. Well, if you have a sales candidate who really wants that job, they're probably going to quickly uh, determine for themselves they want to declare themselves a four or a five, if you will. Mm -hmm. So we use a question format that is designed specifically to eliminate faking called forced choice. So for each question, the person gets a series of three statements. I'm sure you've seen these. And each statement is worded in a very positive way. So mm -hmm. a question, for example, may say something like, uh, I consider myself a leader. I have great relationship skills. I'm very organized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, which of these is most like you and which one is least like you? So obviously that forces the candidate to make some very difficult distinctions, but then it gives us a much better sense of their real priorities. Yeah. And as they're working their way through the assessment, of course, we're constantly monitoring their consistency as they respond to those questions. Because as you can imagine, if they do attempt to fake the test, it's gonna be very difficult for them to remember consistently where they ranked most and least across the entire assessment. So again, it's designed to be very robust in that regard. And we're really looking at that one, that drive piece, if you will. We're not measuring 50 different characteristics. We're really looking at that limited number, need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism, optimism, and then a few more of the teachable characteristics as well. Things like, again, relationship skills, organizational skills, persuasion, confidence. Yeah. So, so some of the elements of uh, uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini in there, in, in elements by the sound of it, if you're looking for consistency, Yes. which is uh, obviously one of the key characteristics, likability, obviously trust and connection with mm -hmm. other people, because again, people can fake it as well. Yes. But being persuasive is, uh, I don't know, you can you can get the people out there, some people out there that they mm -hmm. think they're persuasive, but they're just annoying the living daylight outside of the yep. other person. So you don't want that, but mm -hmm. you also want respect for the client you also want uh, to see it from their point of view rather than going into that 1980s uh, uh second-hand car dealership approach you know the one you're talking about you go uh -huh. oh, you're talk about that. I, that doesn't work anymore and that, i don't think that ever really did uh pushing people into a corner but it's yeah. actually has a, a really smart guy uh who's a, a friend and mentor of mine is to help people buy mm-hmm Yes, exactly. And it's all about really finding out what's most important to that person, what's most important to your prospect and treating that as the, the crux of the conversation. You know, finding out how can you be of service to them. The word that I always use again and again, service, 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 focusing on service, everything else kind of happens naturally uh, at that point. And you're exactly right. You know, when you look at persuasion, if someone is using improper techniques or they're, they're being in some ways way too aggressive, the benefit to looking at persuasion is again, we can teach that. That's something that we can potentially improve.
Uh, and if you have somebody who's high in need for achievement, for example, and they need to improve persuasion, that high need for achievement person is sort of like that kid in school that just has to get high marks. They have that mentality, if you will. So if they are doing something, as you can imagine, that's getting in their own way, you can stop them. You can show them, okay, here are a few things you're doing right, and here are a few things that are getting in your own way. Here's how you can make your performance even that much better. Here's how you can become even that much more powerful as a salesperson, and they will make that adjustment. That's why we emphasize that non-teachable piece so heavily. Yeah. I think a lot of it's curiosity mm -hmm. is you have to be curiosity, but you also have to have that passion mm -hmm. and you have to have that, make sure that that passion, that drive, that hunger is inside of you. Um, connect your passion to your purpose, mm -hmm. to your dream. Another uh, uh, wonderful Zig Ziglar. And I keep that in my head because you have to have the passion. You really have to have that passion and the drive. Like you might be in an industry that you just keep falling falling over in, but then you go to another industry and you absolutely fly and you go, well, what changed? Well, maybe it was the environment, maybe it's the culture, maybe it's the products that just was falling on its face, or maybe it's the, the, the leaders. And But you jump onto another ship and then you're flying because everything is around you there to support you. Everything's around there to make you grow and learn. And you go, well, this is where I'm going to fly because I love what I do and waking up every day, as we all know, and you love what you do. So I know I can hear it in your voice, the passion, the tone, the tonality. Mm -hmm. And that's part and parcel of it as well. Something I was going to uh, say and suggest but, uh, as we're talking is everything has to be congruent. What mm -hmm. I mean by that is your voice, your tone, your tonality, but your body language has to be the same. Yes. What other studies did you find out after the assessment on the interview stages? Because that plays a big part as well, because we could all, you know, what comes out of our mouth, which is uh, dependent on what sort of studies that you choose to read. Uh, I, I spoke with Joe Navario the other day, the body language expert, mm -hmm. and he was saying there was a study, 93%, which is 55%, which is body language. The next part is um uh, what comes out of your mouth, your tone, tone, and everything else is the questions that you ask and all of that. But that yeah. fluctuates, apparently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And during the interview, if you do have the opportunity, of course, to be sitting with the person live one-on-one, -on -one, being able to monitor uh, that, that candidate, keeping in mind, of course, that when the person first comes into the interview, they're going to be a little bit keyed up. That's natural. They're going to be a little bit nervous. So we always recommend giving that candidate a little bit of time to kind of calm down, maybe five minutes, just to kind of relax and kind of get their, their, their baseline back to their baseline behavior, if you will. Yeah. Get their blood pressure down. Yeah, and yeah. then at that point, just kind of get the, take the opportunity to kind of, again, do a little bit of small talk and then work into the interview questions. Uh, we always recommend, again, if you haven't done so, work into the person's resume, et cetera. Then as you're doing so, just watch them and keep an eye on them as you're asking them questions. If, for example, the person suddenly turns red, that can be an indication that they're embarrassed, for example, obviously about whatever topic you're bringing up, or if they start uh, kind of looking to the side, looking down, looking up and to the left, you know, sometimes you get, or looking up and to the right, you know, they're, they're, they're searching for an answers. I don't yeah, get visual auditory exactly. and uh, getting the images if it's done in the right direction. Yeah, I understand that, yes. yeah. Yes. And again, if the person is getting a little bit nervous, what I would tend to look out for is if the person is getting you know, excessively nervous, if they're responding in a very, very rapid fashion, for example, to a given question, or they tend to start for some reason toward the end of the interview, for example, they maybe they're stammering for some reason when they hadn't before, chances are you may have hit upon a sensitive subject, if you will. 
Now, if that sensitive subject is something, again, it's obviously focused on the world of work. If maybe you're asking them about uh, a time when they had to learn a lot in a, in a given task and, and what it was that was challenging for them. Uh, if they're responding in such a way that, again, they're, they're stammering, oftentimes that indicates that they're a little bit nervous about that particular area. I'd want to think about, okay, is this an area that we can teach them? Is this something that we can help them develop in? If so, that's fine. You know, they may be earlier in career. It's natural uh, for them to feel that way. I'd rather bring somebody on board who is maybe just a little bit green and a little bit nervous, but who had that passion than the other way around. The person who maybe, again, they may be very relaxed, but they maybe want to retire on the job. You know, I don't necessarily want that person as my, as my hunter, if you will. So I want to gauge body language, but I want to do so in a way that's um, congruent uh, with my goals for that person and who they really are. You know, are they, do they tend to be just a little bit more of a wound up type individual? That can be okay if we're able to dial it back, particularly if they have that need for achievement and we can show them how they can adjust their body language because that's the most important thing too when we talk about listening skills. How are they adjusting their body language to deal with different types of prospects? Because chances are during the day, they're gonna deal with many different types of people and they're gonna have to adjust themselves to, be, to re remain congruent with those people, if you will. So again, so I kind of- The balance between IQ and EQ. Exactly. What exactly. what is the 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 balance? Did you gauge on that? Because obviously you have to have an air of critical thinking. You have mm -hmm. to have an air of resonating with the other person, but really understanding yourself and who you are. Because the mm -hmm. more you can understand yourself, mm -hmm. I think the more you can actually understand others and how others behave. Because you already know yourself, you already know how you speak, and you already know what's going on in your head. So I think that high level of emotional intelligence, whatever you and however you package that emotional intelligence, but obviously you need intelligence as well. But what's the balance? Good question. So that balance of IQ and EQ, if you will, really kind of depends, we find, on the position itself that we're hiring for. So for example, we may hire for a very complex sale or a less complex sale. If we're hiring for a less complex sale, something more um, the classic widget, if you will, oftentimes the person doesn't need quite as much IQ as, for example, if we're selling something that's very complex, say a complex solution sale, in which the person needs strong problem-solving skills, cognitive abilities, someone who really needs to be a very quick problem solver throughout the day. Uh, they need to have good analytical ability. And that sort of an individual, we need a little bit more of the higher IQ. And there are many assessments you can use that can be fairly, fairly quick, a 12-minute assessment. For example, there's a great one out there kind of that looks at that intellectual ability, that horsepower, if you will. On the EQ side, we find that no matter what, you know, EQ is important. You know, e the IQ, we can adjust a little bit. EQ, uh, uh, is important no matter what, because with EQ, we're always looking at, is this person going to, as you mentioned, remain congruent with their prospect? Are they going to be the sort of individual that's going to focus on what they can really do to be of service to that prospect? And the person high in EQ is able to not only do that, but also adjust their behavior during the conversation. If they know that something has changed in that prospect or that client's demeanor, they're going to be able to adjust themselves to be congruent with that person. And when you feel that someone is congruent with you or they're resonating with you, yeah. you're much more likely to kind of nod, if you will. Like, like I'm doing now. Yeah, and, and, and again, you're much more likely to have a strong relationship yeah. with that person because that, that's just human nature, if you will. So I'd say EQ is important no matter what. The IQ, we can kind of adjust. There are some situations, as you can imagine, where the solution or the, the, the sale is a more complex solution sale, which we need a little bit more IQ. Sometimes it's not as complex. Uh, even in that situation, if it's not as complex and the IQ is too high, they can come across as an egghead. We don't necessarily want that. Sometimes we get to dial it down a little bit in terms of what we're really looking for. Uh, but EQ is always important. We don't measure EQ with our assessment simply because we wanted to keep it under control uh, in terms of length. But there are many great assessments uh, out there that look at EQ. I studied that a bit during my internship. I remember before I got my doctorate, EQ is a fantastic, oh, yeah. a fantastic. What uh, about, what about also um, ageism in the marketplace for sales professionals? Because there is ageism out there. Because mm -hmm. you've got all these uh, wonderful tech companies out there and they hire the best and they hire that. But sometimes 
there's other people out there and there is ageism in the marketplace. What do you notice if you studied people uh, that are slightly older uh, and then you bring out an assessment in them? What have you brought out in that? That's a good question. Um, we actually, of course, when we designed our assessment, we wanted to make sure that it adhered to the guidelines we have here in the United States, the EEOC, to make sure that there was no discrimination based upon age. But there is. But there is. You know, in, in terms of the assessment itself, we wanted to make sure that people weren't scoring differently, as you can imagine, uh, just because they were older. And we, we found that with the assessment, we weren't having any of that sort of bias with the assessment right. itself. Um, however, we do see, a, of course, um, when companies are hiring, there can be that pre-election sometimes, oftentimes for a younger company. They'll want people who uh, they, they feel are going to be um, congruent with them. They think, that, okay, to do so, we're going to need people who are younger. That's not necessarily true at all. What you really want to look for is the person's background. Do they have the ideal background? You want, and again, do they have those personality characteristics? We see sometimes people later in career still have that very high need for achievement. They're very competitive. They're very optimistic. They can certainly do quite well for you. It's really just about determining whether the person has both the right background and the right drive to be the, the ideal sort of person for that particular role. So for example, sometimes companies will say, well, we want somebody who's going to come on board and they're going to hit the ground running. We want them yep. to start producing relatively quickly. What should we look for? Well, we want to look for somebody who's, uh, they, they may say somebody who's a little bit earlier in career, but maybe has had success at a very large company. Surely they'll bring that same degree of success to bear for us. And I will tell them, watch out. Yep. You want to find somebody, particularly if you're a younger company, and you're yep. looking for somebody who's going to start producing quickly for you. You want to find somebody who, again, has some experience in a similar situation. So maybe they've had two to three years or maybe even more of relevant experience. And here's the key, at a similarly sized company, yep. as well as a higher drive score. Because again, if you get the person who's been successful at the very large company, oftentimes it's tempting to say, okay, uh, this person's been successful at this very large company. Surely they've had world-class sales training. Surely they'll bring that same degree of success to bear for us. But the key question is what really led to their success? Was it always their own effort? Or was it really the fact that they had all that brand recognition, collateral material, they're helping them out? So again, you can certainly find people who are later in career who can be quite successful, particularly if they have the background that you're ideally looking for in terms of previous experience. And then they have that passion, if you will, those non-teachable characteristics so that when you do uh, put them in that role, they can hit the ground running and start filling their pipeline relatively quickly. Age doesn't have anything to do with what really leads to someone to be successful as a salesperson. You have somebody who's later in career, someone early in career, they can all be successful if they have again the right pieces and you put them in the right situation at the right time good i like that answer that was very good very concise very uh succinct um so what haven't i actually asked you yet so if you were interviewing yourself what sort of question would you ask yourself right now hmm. i would probably ask myself what do you know now at this point in your career dr croner that you most perhaps wish you knew when you got started, you know, something like that, that really causes the person to go, huh? That's often a question I'll recommend when I'll talk to students, uh, when, they're, when they're interviewing for their first job, it's a great question to ask someone in that situation because it really quite requires you to think. And if you were to ask me that, I might say, well, I, I probably most wish that I knew how different, sometimes different people react to the concept of hiring a high drive salesperson. I think that would probably be the most interesting thing that I probably could have found out at the beginning. For example, you can get individuals that think that they have a golden gut, if you will, that they don't need any sort of an assessment. They don't need a, a streamlined process. They can just sit with a candidate and just kind of kind of get a good feel for how the person's going to perform. And they, they just know. 
They don't need any extra help. Yeah. Um, oftentimes that person can take a little bit of while to come around to the idea that, well, again, ha having a gut instinct is important. That's certainly important, for example, looking at something like, say, cultural fit, but it's not always going to be the most reliable indicator of whether the person is going to succeed for you as a salesperson. Instead, having a step-by-step -step consistent process, starting out with, for example, a resume review and what do you look for in a resume? We always mm. talk about that. A phone screen, for example, what do you ask in a phone screen? We talk about that. Moving on to an online assessment, what questions do we use? How do we assess those characteristics? And then moving the person into the one-on-one -on -one interview, combining all of those steps and looking consistently at all of the elements of what we might think of as the sales ecosystem. So not only personality, but also, as you can imagine, fit with the company culture, fit with the management style, fit with the compensation plan. All those things come together like an athlete at the end of the day to ultimately determine how successful that person will be. In this case, again, we're looking at when it comes to personality, we're kind of looking at raw athletic ability. How fast can they run? How high can they jump? But at the end of the day, all of those things come into play as well. So it's about teaching companies to understand that all the elements of that, um, that system are important and giving them a consistent process. I talked about system before, a consistent process they can use every single time to assess candidates, making sure that the experience is fair and helpful for every single candidate. There was a question in there, actually. I, I was, I'm reading a book at the moment, right? It's an audible book, but mm -hmm. the, it's all about support psychology. And he was speaking about uh, a rugby match between New Zealand and France and it was the finals but the World Cup was actually happening but the New Zealanders uh, were just going down and down and down but they're so aggressive as a team they were saying one of the guys was just out and out and out but everyone was aiming in for him but he had such power such cohesiveness such drive like he got knocked out literally and he was just like he didn't know where he was but he still got up yeah. Then he got hit in the head and he had blood rushing down and had a big gust coming down there. But he said, no, I still have to go. I've got three points and the French team had 20 points or something like that. But he still got up there and he got actually hit somewhere really badly. And it wasn't until the end of the game and he was still up out there because other people were being sent off. And uh, um, finished the end of the map and he was just about to go uh, and just get washed down and all that. But he had such a large cut and he had blood coming off him and uh, flesh hanging off him. Mm. But that, to me, on sports and cells, is that just whatever happens, I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to drive through. And there's a direct, as we know, and you, you obviously know very well, there's a direct correlation between elite sports people and salespeople and entrepreneurs with that drive and passion and know-how. And that, that area is just, if you have that, I think that's the top of the top where you just don't feel it, see it, but you just go for it. Yes. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, the human spirit's an amazing thing, isn't it? And really when you can exemplify something like that for the rest of the team, you're setting an example at the same time that you're doing that. And that changes their mind in terms of what's possible. You know, it changes their, 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 their mindset at that same time in terms of, okay, what can I do now? This person is willing to do this. What am I willing to do? And you're exactly right. You see a lot of that in common amongst athletes and salespeople and entrepreneurs. Now, a key distinction is that many companies will say to us, well, that's what we really look for. We want someone who is a former athlete and that's good enough. I'll tell them, no, you don't. That's not good enough because yeah, if yeah. that person has been a former athlete, that's wonderful, fantastic. But I want to find out, for example, what really led to their success. Was it someone who was, say, for example, a great college athlete, but they needed a coach every morning to call them to get them out of, out of bed. I ideally would like to look for someone who was successful as an athlete. Of course, that, that could yeah, be great. Yeah, yeah. 
but also the person who was out in the field at 6.30 every morning before everybody else. That mentality, if you will. David Beckham's of the world. Exactly, exactly. You know, that's exactly what we're talking about. Now, again, the person might not have an athletic background, and that's fine too. Someone who had to work to put themselves through school, that's great. But always finding out what really, you know, contributes to that person's need for achievement, competitiveness, and optimism. Because a person can be competitive in many different ways. They don't have to be in sports. That, that's a great outlet for it, but there can be many different fields of endeavor or areas of their life in which they've been competitive. And we always allow for those as well. Yeah, no, I completely concur with that. Uh, and I think there's other elements in there. I and mean, we could probably carry on this discussion forever in a day. Uh, obviously, being coachable, knowing and giving, uh, being having feedback, then opening up and going, okay, well, how can I adjust what I've done? And how can I change if something's gone, not gone in the right direction? And so on and so forth. There are lots and lots of the topics. And I'm fascinated with this. Um, Christopher, uh, how can people find out more about what you do? Obviously, your book, and um, we've spoken about your book, which is uh, absolutely phenomenal. But um, how can people find out more about you? Thank you. They can go to salesdrive.info. And there, for any of your listeners who are, for example, sales managers, they'll have the opportunity to do a sample drive test. We offer one complimentary assessment. There's a big button uh, at salesdrive.info, as well as if any of your listeners would be interested in learning more about our partner program or partnering with us, we have information on our website as well. Awesome. Christopher, that was absolutely fantastic. I've thoroughly enjoyed that conversation today. And there, there's so much uh, golden nuggets all along the way. And I'm sure this is 100% value for anyone that's listening to this and I know they're going to get some stuff out of this, some golden jibs I have. And I love the conversation as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jason. Very much enjoyed being here. And again, enjoyed the opportunity to be of service. Thank you. You've listened to the Global Sales Leader podcast. Every week I speak to phenomenal people, phenomenal guests, where we can learn and grow together, where we can actually have the mind, the mindset and help give value forward to all of our clients and our potential clients. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of the Global Sales Leader Podcast, episode 52. If you'd like to hear more of everything in around sales, sales psychology, coaching, L&D systems, technology, and other facets around behavior, body language, and so on and so forth, in around the areas of sales and success and what it takes to be the most successful. If you want to find out more about me, uh, please go to my website, jasoncooper.io, or email jcooper at jasoncooper.io.